Welcome to the 1CA Podcast. This is your host, Jack Gaines. 1CA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to discuss their experiences on ground with the partner nation's people and leadership. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working the last three feet of foreign relations. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassoc.org. I'll have those in the show notes. I get a lot of requests from service clubs, you know, the Rotaries, the Kiwanis, and all kinds of different organizations here in Montana who are just interested in the world and want to get a, a slice of it a little bit of critique, a little bit of analysis. And so it's pretty common that I'm out in the community talking to business groups, service clubs, that kind of thing. Chris Islop returns to 1CA Podcast to discuss the challenges of balancing human rights and diplomacy real when working with partner nations in strategic competition. Chris retired from the UN, where he worked human rights missions globally. And today he will share some of his stories and experiences and insights. So enjoy. Well, I tell you, Jack, I'm not from Montana. I moved here three and a half years ago, and I now realize I should not have been surprised, but I admit I was at the kind of internationalist perspective. What it really boils down to here in Montana is the primary economic driver here is agriculture and ranching with minerals and what have you not. And so farmers and ranchers in Montana are watching and aware of what goes on they have to. It's their livelihood. A couple of years ago when that China trade deal was going on, people you wanted to talk to were not people like me. You wanted to talk to the farmers and ranchers because they knew a lot more about it than I did. They were plowing through the agreement, seeing where it was going to impact them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then they think very broadly and not just how it's going to impact them, but how can they influence the policy outcomes and government outcomes. So uh, I was with a community group and we did discuss different aspects of this ongoing conundrum here in the United States and around the world in foreign policy, whether one takes a kind of moralist view, which is considering the impact on humans and human rights and humanitarian affairs in foreign policy, or does one take the national interest as its primary starting point and go from there and decisions are made that support national interest? And of course, that debate has been going on for decades, if not longer. When we make decisions, should they be adhering to certain moral and ethical values that we as a society have? Or are we looking at these kinds of decisions as strictly ensuring our safety and security, our economic well-being in surgical terms? And so that debate has been going on for so long. And I had the opportunity to talk to people here in Missoula on that just the other day because we were talking about American support to Ukraine. And where does that discussion fit? And there is no right answer to it, of course. And I'll give you my opinion, which is the more tools in the toolbox, the better. So rather than looking at this as an either or, you apply tools differently in different situations to achieve different outcomes. And so that's kind of the grosso modo where I stand on that. But of course, we start getting into the weeds and we talk about specific things. Then it gets interesting. Right. Well, the neat thing is you've got a lot of great backup, like Alistair Smith's discussion from the Dictator's Handbook, as well as Mm -hmm. John Kassara. They both talk about the abuse that these 
authoritarian regimes and kleptocrats use to gain and hold power. So if you're competing with a human rights, civil society style of diplomacy, you're showing a real contrast between the two. Well, I think, Jack, you're right on that. And I'd add to it another thought here that we can explore. In a situation like that might be where there's a rights-abusing regime. That might be an easier choice. There are far more difficult choices, of course, those regimes that may not be explicitly rights-abusing, but who are maybe exploitative in different ways, exploiting uh, economic resources or, or what have you. But the point that you raise or what comes to me from what you said is to keep in mind that there are a lot of markets in the world. We talk about a globalized economy. That is a kind of market. And we often think in these kind of economic and market terms. And it's useful because there is a global market of values. And those values that we project as a society are ones which we in our foreign policy, we practice, whether that's in the hallways in Washington, D.C., or if you're boots on the ground, field practitioner, what is happening is you are proposing certain values and people then will choose. But it's not easy, right? Because one can be proposing things that are very economically positive in an expedient sense. And I want to share with you a very quick story. Please. Many years ago, I was working in northern Uganda, and at the time, there was a terrible insurgency by this large resistance army. It was quite brutal. Sure. We were in the bush, I mean, the real bush, where it was just a track, and we're in a kind of SUV, you know, Jeep thing, and we're bumping along. And we came to the point where one Ugandan state line meets the other state line. And right at that point, the beginnings of a four-lane asphalt road. And right next to that road is a bunch of giant earth-moving road-building machines. And sitting on those machines are Chinese workers. And so we all know kind of the broad story about the rise of China and Chinese reach around the world and their reach being to support countries in building their infrastructure in return for resource rights, oil, uh, minerals, and what have you, not to fuel their economy. Sure. But the point is, is that road gets built by Chinese, right? And while they're there, they're, they're purporting certain values to the people of Uganda and the government of Uganda. And there's a concrete value proposition that occurs, which is that farmer who's living out there and using that road can now bring goods to market at a much lower price. Right. And they're able to sell it at a higher price and they're going to earn more money thanks to that road. Now, whether you like it or not, or whether you would consider China to be a rights-abusing or an exploitative government, at the end of the day, the Ugandan has gained a huge amount of value. And so that global marketplace of values, person's going to say, well, you know, the Chinese really pulled this thing off. Right. That's good for us. So it's a long way of kind of getting into the global market of values and to remember that we're definitely in the middle of that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Americans accepting that the Chinese are going to build this road, we can then jump in and help the farmers expand their crop yield or their livestock yield so that we become the branding as well. I mean, that's the thing about competition versus conflict. We don't have to blow up the road. We can use it for our advantages as well. Well, that's a great point. Yes, spot on. You're right. It can build off uh, each other. It's just that you have to make sure that you're entered into that market in the first place. 
Right. If the Chinese are building that road, maybe part of the deal is, look, we're going to build this road. Uh, we're going to build a port and this airport. But guess what? In order to do that, we're going to extract X amount of natural resources and you can't cut a deal with the Americans. I mean, that can be part of it, right? And so that kind of market access that we always talk about too is key to to make sure you're able to access it. And I'll just say as a concern for a country that practices moral or rights-based foreign policy, oftentimes then America would come to a place like that and say, okay, listen, we're willing to do these things, but first you have to take care of these rights abuses. You've got to clean up your act. Right. And that country says, well, okay, we can do that for you and get your support, or we can just go to the Chinese who don't care. Right. And they're happy to give us the money and the support. So that's a bit of the maybe unfair competition, but it's just real. That's the way it works out there. Sure. But one of the reasons I've found recently that the Chinese don't do exclusion agreements like that is they are absolutely dependent on the U.S. and South America for their pork feed, soy. The U.S. and South America grow almost all the soy that China uses to feed its its livestock. Yeah. So, and that's that complexity of the global economic system is that if we remember that we do have certain interdependencies, we can ensure that there's no exclusion agreements, which is a good thing. We want to ensure that we have competition. And if we start having exclusions in the market, then we start building hegemonies and China's going to win because they're able to do moral things that we can't in order to create those exclusions. So we kind of have to keep that balance of codependency yeah. so that we can forward human right reforms with these countries so that they actually treat their people well or create opportunities for them. It's not just a resource pull in order to, to extract the wealth out of the country. Yeah, that's exactly right, Jack. You've hit it spot on. And your first point about the interdependency of markets is is key in, in its broadest sense. I mean, you've said it in this example. And more broadly, of course, our interdependence with China and other countries is also key to our own security and economic stability. It's a fact that China owns a huge portion of American debt. So when Americans hear that we are in deficit, a lot of that debt is owned by China. And that's a good thing, actually, because that balances trade to a certain extent. And then mentioned the soy trade and other agricultural trade. You know, certainly a big plus for farmers and ranchers here in Montana and around America on agriculture, but more broadly, you know, all of our economics are very tightly intertwined. What we're seeing now, though, a major point in foreign policy that's been bubbling up for years and emerges very clearly now through the situation in Ukraine is a more blatant challenge to this rules-based international order, the global trade being a part of that. Right. So that's also a worrisome sign. And will we all continue to play by those rules or, or not? And that's weird because I've heard murmurs in the NSC that they're forecasting that the post-World War II construct for global economics is actually fragile and that it does need to be rehabilitated. I don't see a better system coming out yet, but I'm assuming that there's people looking at how to refortify a more global structure. Yeah. Well, I'm not maybe the best person to ask for that, but I am a recovering U.S. bureaucrat. So. <laughs> we all have our 12 steps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
So those organizations that you mentioned, the Brenton Woods organizations, the IMF and the World Bank, came out of World War II as a very explicit means to do it, this thing that you and I are discussing right now, which is to try to look at the financial side of things, to try to ensure that those things would not be the precursor to large-scale conflict. Right. Everything that's coming out of World War II is saying, we don't want to do that again. And so these organizations emerge. And so they have actually reinvented themselves several times over the years. The World Bank that we know today is just nothing at all like it was when it began. So it is evolutionary. But I totally agree with anybody who says these organizations and any multilateral organization like that that's within the UN has to constantly evolve with the times and the needs of its members, right? So we can never forget this idea that the UN is an organization of member states. It's not a monolith in and of itself. Right. That the 192 member states are driving that. But then you have the Security Council, of course, and the Permanent Five, who really drive most of the agenda of the UN. But it's true from the insider view, any reasonable UN guy would agree that the UN does not work perfectly. I don't think it was meant to. Most bureaucracies don't. But what is in the favor, it's a bit of a silly soundbite that will say, well, if there wasn't a UN, you'd have to make one. It's kind of silly and trite, but it's actually not far from the truth. It doesn't perfectly function is less a reflection on the structure itself and more of a reflection on its members. It's not to pass blame, but the member states have to accept that the way that thing functions is a reflection on how they function within it. But to cut to the quick here is those organizations must evolve with the times. And yes, this global rules-based order, I guess it's always been fragile, Jack, but now it's really been shaken up in the past year with Ukraine and tensions in the Taiwan Strait. And everybody's saying, now, wait a second, are these things resilient enough to withstand these kinds of things? And what do we need to do to strengthen them? Right. And I listened to Michael Morell, who Mm. has a show called Intelligence Matters. And one of the questions that he was asking Baroness Catherine Ashton was, what do you do with with countries that actively try to create chaos or disorder is their foreign policy in order to break away from being in the international community, self-isolating in order to exploit it for resources or use as a proxy or some other action? I think that's one of the challenges that you're talking about is fracturing that global structure. but also. Do you think that it's time for the Permanent Five to get reshuffled in the UN? Well, that's been on the back burner for 25, 30 years now, Jack, that the Permanent Five. Most people would say yes, but the fact is, and let's just be honest with each other, the Permanent Five will never allow that. Right. I was going to say, every time you one brings it up, four will say no. <laughs> yeah. It's okay to just be totally honest about this thing. There are other ways to manage Security Council affairs that do not bust up the permanent five, but offer more power, more say, more ability for the other members. Yes. Important diplomacy happens at the Security Council. But when we're talking about the things that we're talking about now, equally, if not more important diplomacy is happening amongst nation states and the European Union. Russia and China and what have you not. And so that relationship and the diplomacy, and and we mentioned the tools in the toolbox. If the question that Mike Morell was talking about, how do you deal with a Russia who's trying to bust things up? 
you got to pull out the tools in the toolbox that you know work. And America is pretty good at that. Right. You know, we look back on some important things. For example, the coalition that George Bush built in the first Iraq war and, and using multilateral diplomatic approach. He was a UN perm rep for the US back in the day. And so he knew how to kind of navigate that thing. And so there is a lot to be said on that. First of all, it's incredibly difficult. You got to do a lot of coordination, cooperation, relationship building, and all of that stuff to build this coalition. That's hard long-term work. But when it works, then you have something far more serious and far more effective than you would have if you were standing alone. Sure. So in terms of Russia right now, this is not a partisan comment on the current American administration, but I have to hand it to them about creating and maintaining a very difficult coalition. This love affair between Europe and America is long-term, but it's not a given thing. And many times over the years that that has been shaken up, the Russian invasion of Ukraine really shook things up. And the American diplomacy and ability to stay within that coalition and not just stay, but now you see strengthening, that's tough work. And so because I come from this multilateral background, my answer to Morel's question is be, what we're doing now is the right thing coalition building, this staying together, the military aspect of that has kind of taken precedence in terms of the public news, the open source news stuff. But look what's happening economically, what's happening in terms of political and cultural affairs, and all kinds of tools are being used to punish this aggressive behavior. Yes. It's not my opinion that stuff is aggressive. This is the international rule-based order that is saying according to these principles and these laws, what Russia is doing is wrong. Right. The ICC just indicted Vladimir Putin. I mean, that's, that's a big thing. I know. That's big, big news, Jack. That is extraordinary. Really, when I read that, I was hugely surprised at that. I mean, it opens up a huge can of worms for better and for worse, but I was incredibly surprised. How about you? Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, Yeah. Well, my first thought was I need to email Bill Browder and see if he wanted to reach out to Interpol and send out a red notice. <laughs> yeah, right. Right on. I mean, wow. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Here, Bill, would you like to fill out the paperwork? <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> He'd be like, yes, I would. I'll have my uh, my glass of wine. I'll fill this out and kiss my ass. Putin. Yeah, right. Exactly that one definitely does not kind of flip that switch without really serious consideration and really serious international diplomacy and discussions going on behind the scene because I've dealt with the ICC in the past in my UN days around the situation in sure. Darfur and the situation in northern Uganda. Sure. And it's an incredibly interesting institution. I don't want to go into a lot of depth there, but I do know that when this thing clicks forward, the ICC project themselves as a strictly legal proposition. Right. So they don't consider themselves political and they consider themselves away from and outside of political wrangling and diplomacy. But come on, what could be more political than indicting a head of state? I mean, that's just, that's quite amazing. Right. So anyway, we'll see where this thing goes. Well, and it's interesting because it's never really the dictator that keeps himself in power. It's that core ring of supporters. So you got to give a reason for that inner core to support it. Yeah. They yeah. keep their power and their authority and they have opportunities. 
that they wouldn't have in the current regime. Now that he's indicted, there's going to be people, field agents, basically, were, you know, reaching out to this inner circle of his and starting that discussion of once Putin's gone, you're protected right now. But if you keep protecting him as he continues through this environment, you're going to start losing your ability to get off the hook. <laughs> to deliver Putin and actually be a part of the transition of the government to another leadership style. You know, it's interesting that part because, of course, those around Putin are taking notice, no doubt. The public information was very, it was like a three-liner or something like that of, we don't recognize this court, and that's all there is to say, um, which is, you know. <laughs> well, unfortunately... <laughs> The U.S. doesn't either. But, <laughs> yeah. But I no doubt there are international prosecutors that were coaching the Ukrainians oh, I, on how to collect evidence to process it, <laughs> the ICC. <laughs> we have played that game for years, you know, where we are not a part of it, but we certainly deliver people to it, you know. And we're not the only one. I do see the point there on, on America's position, because if we go back to our first position here about a national interest versus a moralist foreign policy. Sure. I can understand that decision from the United States, unlike Russia and other non-signatories, is they do, in word and in deed, try to adhere to the human rights regime, sure. the laws and the principles and the norms. Sure. That's a little bit different. But you're so right, Jack, that Putin's inner circle are taking note. There was a very interesting article in Foreign Policy last week boiling this thing down to say, Putin and others can continue so long as they are successfully repressing opposition. Right. So long as you maintain an inner circle and you don't allow for any kind of opposition, then you're okay. And Putin has been very successful in that, as have been many other leaders cut from the same cloth. I spent a lot of time in Sudan and Former President Bashir was also indicted by the ICC, a rights-abusing guy. Right. But what did he do successfully? He stayed in power. Everybody thought, oh, this is the end. This is the end. This is really going to be, it's all over now. <laughs> He's going to just hunch over and turn himself in. Yeah, but then he just stayed and stayed and stayed and stayed. And But what did happen ultimately was an internal kind of coup where the calculation changed, as you say, and his inner circle said, all right, we're going to have to give this guy up if we're going to get what, whatever we want, whatever that might be. And usually what it is, is they want to go and travel. They want, they, they want to go to Switzerland and go skiing. They want to travel to Hong Kong, you know, and hang out. And that's why you're a supporter of the head honcho, yeah. is that you have the power, but you don't have the prestige that gets you targeted. Yeah. And I mean, for example... There's a lot of social media popping up these days about Iran and how the leaderships has family living in Paris or London. Oh, yeah. And they're starting to expose that and put it back into the Iranian people so that they see that mm -hmm. the value system that they propose to the public is different than what the leadership who run the country have. Yeah. And one of the things I'm working on is not only for civil affairs and other field agents and diplomats and aid workers to spot and address corruption by naming, shaming, and sanctioning, but also then to start going and talking to these core supporters and finding ways to where they would help to build reforms into the system and end the autocratic or oligarchical system that they are supporting now to give them a carrot. Because we have all sticks, but we don't have any carrots. We need to start figuring out those carrots to get international partners that we do want to be a part of. Yeah. And 
are reasonable, that they are good partners in the international community and they perform well versus propping up another form of dictator. Jack, that's really well put. And as you say, in the international arena, that's very true. But I would say, and you'd probably agree that for civil affairs personnel on the ground, geez, that is such a hard job. I mean, I have to hand it to you all, <laughs> people who are listening to this. I, but you're right about the carrot and the stick, and civil affairs people know this well, is that not only do you have to have carrots, you have to have the right carrots that fit in that place for that culture at that time that makes sense in order to achieve the outcome that you're looking for. Right. I just had an interview with Josh Benningfield, and he wrote a piece on shadow governments, how they work, how shadow governments grow, you know, in competition to standard governments mm. and how you counter them, how you grow them. Yeah. But one thing that he brought up that I thought was critical is the need to understanding the core values of that population. Yeah. What really drives them, what really is important, and then address those. If you're competing with somebody else, if you can address those core values, you can actually get them to listen to you and at least talk about what's going on. Yeah. You're right in that you have to know what your population you're working with and also what they value so that you can engage it and try to build that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And colleagues will know that the way to do that is face to face. It's almost impossible to do that by email, phone, you know, whatever, <laughs> even if that stuff is available. And that's it's tough and it's long term. It takes a long time. You know, we know that we're, we're also humans. We know that when I meet a new person, I don't immediately trust them just because they're talking to me. It takes some time for, for me to understand and warm up to anybody in the world. And the same would go for any situation. Sure. I mean, how many used cars would you own if you trusted every person you met? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. But I, I do. I, I have to say hats off because, you know, a lot of my work in humanitarian affairs shares that aspect of the civil affairs personnel in that when we're working in these places, you don't just deliver a, a truckload of rice to a, a village that may be affected by conflict or natural disaster. Right. You have to go in there. You have to talk to people, learn, understand. And in kind of relatively short order, our timelines are much shorter than most people's timelines where, you know, you got to get things done. And so that doesn't always favor a really kind of a well, well understood and researched approach. But a smart uh, civil affairs officer and a smart humanitarian is willing to put that time in in order to get that understanding because the subtle differences and the subtle bits of, of language and culture absolutely change the complexion of who you are and what you're doing in that place if you're doing it right. Sure. Well, unfortunately, due to some technical issues that ended our session, Chris and I had to close the discussion. But in the future, I plan to bring Chris back, so stay tuned. Thanks for listening. If you get a chance, please like and subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're interested in coming on the show or hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. I'll have the email and CA Association website in the show notes. And now, most importantly, to those currently out in the field, working with a partner nation's people or leadership to forward U.S. relations, thank you all for what you're doing. This is Jack, your host. Stay tuned for more great episodes, 1CA Podcast.